Welcome to Strictly Jojo, a podcast dedicated to Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, where every Jojo episode is reviewed by casuals for casuals. My name is Courtney. And Konokaruda! This is episode five, and we're reviewing part one, Phantom Blood, The Dark Knights. As always, there'll be spoilers for this episode and anything that's happened previously in Jojo, so you've been warned. So we're already more than halfway done with part one, which is kind of crazy, but when you think about it, it's only nine episodes. So I guess it's not that much of a surprise. And we're like 1% done with the entire series. Yeah. (laughs) This is a a small, while it's very, very important to the overall JoJo story, it's a small part of the whole saga of JoJo. Before we get into JoJo for this episode, I wanted to take a quick moment to talk about a legendary moment in weeb history. Does anyone remember that old Sakura-Kan commercial from 2009? Oh, my God. <laughs> I bring this up because our friends, uh, we were talking with our friends about it um, a couple weeks back, and we just kept playing that commercial over and over and over again. Like, it's one of those things where we knew about it, we knew about the meme um, when it went viral and all that stuff, and then we haven't talked about it or thought about it in a really long time. And then it came up one weekend when we were talking to our friends um, just about random things. And I don't know, this like triggered some repressed memories in my brain of, of weebness at that time in, in con and in cosplay um, history. I don't know. It just It's such a funny commercial because I think they tried really hard to make it good. And <laughs> I think it turned out to be good in a way they weren't anticipating <laughs> in a very bad way yeah it's like so bad it's good like i i can't even i don't know i can't describe it like it's if, if you haven't seen it um it's this commercial where a bunch of weebs are at a sushi restaurant um and they're sitting at the sushi bar and then one of them starts saying like oh my god i love sushi and then they all start saying shit that they love about like japanese culture and about anime and manga and like one of them is like, I love anime. And this chick comes out and she's like, and manga. And then like there's this one dude who's dressed like a fucking goth. And he like comes out of nowhere with like rock and roll hands. And he's like, Guru Kamesh. And then there's and gaming. <laughs> and gaming. God. Like, oh, uh, that's and, and the and gaming dude. I mean, I think he's probably like the highlight of the commercial. And then it just goes into like everyone talking about what they love, like DDR and everything. And the sushi chef. Um, he like stops everyone. He's like, okay, let's, you know, go to Sakura-kan. He says it in Japanese, like Sakura-kan ikimasu. And it just like, I don't know. You then get these like crazy graphics of like things like spinning and like zooming in. It's like, you know, go to Sakura-kan this, this weekend, some weekend in, um, in 2009 in, in Seattle. And I don't know. It just like, it is just a fantastic commercial. That's all I can say about it. <laughs> it feels like something out of, you know, like Tim and Eric from Adult Swim or just some weird commercial you'd find on like a public access channel. <laughs> it just That's what it just screams. And I don't, it's like the, I would say the peak of like anime convention memes. Yeah, I don't think we'll ever see another anime convention that has such a an, an iconic commercial for their convention and i think commercials in general for anime cons aren't like a common thing um i know uh the the cons that we go to over like the last couple of years have started to to have some radio ads here or there or post some stuff like on billboards or on trains and stuff but 
back in 2009, like they were pretty bold to have a commercial for an anime convention, especially because I feel like anime back then wasn't as well received for, for us veterans out there who know what I'm talking about. Being a weeb back in like the early 2000s or even 2009 um, that's not something you were super open about. Which makes sense because look at this shit. <laughs> <laughs> Who would want to go to this with this kind of production quality? Yeah. You got the Garugamesh guy. You got the and Gaming guy. It's just, it's fantastic. So anyway, if you haven't seen it, we'll we'll probably post it on our Instagram page if you want to check that out at the Strictly series. Um, it's just, it's phenomenal. You can also find it on YouTube. If you type in Sakura Khan commercial, you, you can't miss it. Trust me. And I'd love to see like a where are they now kind of thing with the actors in this commercial. Although you pointed out that the woman at the very start of it is a voice actor um, who did like a lot of English anime dubs. Yeah. And I honestly didn't put two and two together because I I didn't watch a ton of dubs um, when I first started in in the world of anime. Um, But I recently started watching finally Neon Genesis Evangelion. And I was just doing some light reading up on like the dub versus the sub because that's a show, it's an anime where it's early enough in kind of like my start of anime where I could go either way. I could go dub, I could go sub. I ultimately ended up going sub. But anyway, long story short, um, I looked at the dub, I just saw a couple pictures and stuff and I was like, wait a minute, that's the Sakura Khan lady. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) what a start for her career. I don't, although I don't know if this is actually the start of her career, but well, even if it's not, I like to think that it is. I like to think <laughs> that the Sakura Khan commercial is what launched her career, her successful career as an anime dub artist. Yeah, what a great way to start, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, if you haven't seen, like I said, we'll post it on our Instagram at the Strictly Series so that you can watch it, um, and it'll be immortalized in yet another place besides YouTube and the millions of other places that it's at. It's great. Go watch it. And apparently, it, it has. Uh, an article on the cursed commercials wiki i'm looking at it now is that a thing cursed commercials i guess so because I, I, I just looked it up on google or i looked up the sakura khan commercial on google and it came up as one of the results and it has its own yeah wiki article on this cursed commercials wiki and one of the section is called why it's cursed <laughs> but that's how important this is i guess to to the anime convention it really community is. it very much is All right, so with that said, let's jump into the topic at hand, the very, very important topic of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. So again, like we said earlier, we are already halfway through part one, um, and we have arrived at um, the the start of, not to spoil anything for what's coming ahead, but the start of a, a series of episodes that'll kind of take us into like the final arc of part one. I want to try and describe it in a way that's not too spoilery um for for anyone who hasn't watched ahead of this episode yet and um yeah i think overall i'd have to say of every single jojo episode that's come out between parts one and five this is probably the single episode that i dislike um and that's it's it's hard for me to say that because it's still a very good episode there's a lot that happens there's a lot of great memes that came out of this episode but I'd say overall, if I had to pick one episode in all of JoJo so far that I like the least, it would be this episode. And I agree. Um, I don't know if you've mentioned it, but this is episode five, The Dark Knight, which has an interesting title because I don't know if it's a reference to like Batman because, <laughs> you know, Batman's the Dark Knight. Um, but other than that, like this episode was just okay. Not a lot happens. Like... 
you get introduced to Blueford and Tarkus and you get a, a mini history lesson. But I mean, other than that, like not a ton happens. Like this doesn't progress the plot very much. Well, I would say like the one thing that is important is that we see like the return of Dio because the group travels to Wind Knight's lot because they hear that Dio's around there and then he does come back. And not to say like this isn't an exciting episode because there are definitely like a lot of action sequences. Again, mostly involving uh, Bruford and Tarkus. But at times it's just really absurd and it's not as entertaining as like the other action sequences that we've seen so far. Yeah, and overall I just say like when I sit there and watch it, it feels long. Like we've Mm -hmm. watched it twice now in preparation of this podcast episode and both times I'm like, man, this just feels like an eternity. But when you think about what's actually happening in the episode, it probably is only over the span of like 30 minutes to an hour if you were to think in like real world time or like in in the time of the show or whatever. I don't know how to describe it. You know what I mean? Like if you were to like actually be where they are in that show. Like in real time. Yeah, in real time. Thank you. In real time, it's probably only like a span of like 30 minutes to an hour that they're fighting these guys. And then, but yeah, it just it feels like forever that we're watching it. Um, but again, it's not a bad episode. There, to me, there's no such thing as a bad JoJo episode because they're all so crazy and ridiculous that they're they're amazing in their own right. Um, but yeah, if I had a big one, this one would be my least favorite. And we'll, we'll kind of dive into that a little bit more um, as we talk through the episode. Yeah, so let's go ahead and jump into it with part one, episode five, The Dark Knights. Jonathan, Zeppeli Duda, and Speed Waifu arrive at Wind Knight's Lot, a former knight's training ground turned coaling town, and are promptly pickpocketed by a pauper named Poco. Jonathan follows him to a graveyard and discovers that Poco Loco was hypnotized to lure him into a zombie trap devised by whom else but a nearly healed Dio. Zeppeli Duda tries to take Dio down with Hamon energy, but gets his arm veins frozen by the big baddie. Jonathan literally jumps out of nowhere to try and save his mentor, but gets his own arm frozen, and Speedwaifu attempts to thaw Zeppeli Duda's arm using his rock-hard abs. With Jonathan in his grasp, Dio summons two zombie knights, Tarkus and Bruford, to finish him off. We learn that the duo were duped into being executed as loyal servants of Mary, Queen of Scots, and are intent on exacting their vengeance upon this cursed world, while Dio plans to use Wind Knight's lot as zombie ground zero in infecting all of England. Bruford battles Jonathan into the depths of a lake to his own advantage, while Tarkus splits off to take care of Zeppeli Duda and Speedwaifu. As Jonathan struggles to catch his breath, he ingeniously dives deeper to find an air pocket underneath a rock and unleashes his underwater turquoise blue overdrive attack upon Bruford and his luscious dance macabre hair. And now on to our next segment of the show, Is That a Music Reference?, where we document any and all nods, homages, and tributes that this extraordinary anime makes to the ordinary world of music. There's only two that I caught in this episode, which is the names of the knights. Uh, Bruford is a nod to Bill Bruford, who was the drummer for the English progressive rock bands Yes and Came Crimson. Yes, as we know, um, was the band that performed Roundabout, the song that you hear in the credits for this part. Um, King Crimson is actually another JoJo reference for Way Down the Road, so that's very interesting to note. And the second reference is Tarkus. Um, Tarkus is the name of an album by another English progressive rock band called Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. I did not know either of those. And is it, okay, so then is it Blueford or is it Bruford? Because the subtitles that I've been watching keep saying or keep showing Blueford. 
Um, so I just figured like his name is actually Blueford, but obviously in, in um, Japanese voice acting, they, they pronounce it Bruford. No, it is actually, his last name is Bruford. Okay, then I'll have to retrain myself to try and say Bruford, but if I say Blueford, you know, forgive me. <laughs> and I think, because we've noticed in like a lot of English subtitles for JoJo, they'll intentionally um, rewrite certain names because of copyright issues with like the music bands or whatever. Which is weird here because I wouldn't figure that a last name like Bruford would be copyrighted, but I guess they just wanted to take all cautions. Yeah, I could see that. But now that we talk about this, that makes me think, is this whole story of Tarkus and Bruford um, fake? Or is this like a real duo in history? Because they talk about Queen Mary. Like, wasn't Queen Mary real? I mean, I don't yeah. know my my English history, so. <laughs> no, yeah, I think like they briefly go into this in the episode um i guess there was some kind of conflict between queen elizabeth the first and mary stewart who as i said in the synopsis was mary queen of scots um so i think that in itself was an actual historical event but the knights are just fictional characters um Ah. because i don't think there are there would have been knights back then named after english bands (laughs) i just thought it was like well i didn't even know they were named after english bands Mm -hmm. until this moment um and yeah, I would have just, I don't know, maybe figured that, oh, that was a, a funny coincidence or that Araki chose those names very intentionally. But no, it's a it's a line to a band, as many of JoJo characters are. Yep. And now on to our other segment, JoJo Meme Rundown, where we list each new JoJo meme that appears in each episode. Um, I think in this one, there's two. The first one is Hey Baby, where Zapelli is like talking to Dio for the first time. And then it shows that shot of him in that weird pose. And he snaps. He's like, hey, baby. I think that's a meme. What's and the context of that? I have, like, I have no idea. Like, why would he say baby? <laughs> no clue. Maybe he's he finds Dio hot. And he's like, hey, baby. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other meme is, I think this one's a little more iconic from this episode. It's when Dio, or when I think when Zapelli asked Dio, how many people have you killed? And then Dio asked back of Zapelli, how many breads have you eaten in your lifetime although this can be written um two ways depending on the subtitles you you watch um i think the meme itself follows the subtitles where dio asks how many breads have you eaten in your lifetime but i've also seen um some other places re-subtitle that as how many slices of bread have you eaten in your lifetime i kind of like it as how many breads have you eaten in your lifetime yeah it's more absurd yeah it sounds silly i mean maybe he's talking about whole loaves of bread but but yeah, so that's the other meme there. I think that one, again, is is more um, recognizable because that one is is pretty... Those memes that use the breads thing is like... They're on point. If there are any that we have missed, though, from this episode, please let us know. You can you can contact us on Instagram or on Twitter, on our website. We want to make sure we, we acknowledge each and every JoJo meme. Although also, you know, acknowledging that JoJo memes grow out of any episode at any time the list just keeps growing yeah i was gonna say isn't there like there's the hinjaku hinjaku i know that was mentioned in a previous episode though but i think dio says it again in this one he does yeah i think we first called that out i think the second or third episode when they're battling in the mansion yeah and that's the first time he says it and that's one of my favorite dio memes is hinjaku hinjaku so now we'll talk a little bit more about the episode itself. Um, I would say right off the bat, I find 
Tarkus and Blueford kind Bruford kind of pointless. I don't know. It's hard to like get behind these new enemies. Um, just because I'm like we just get reintroduced to Dio. And I'm looking forward to like a Dio fight, right? And we get a little bit of that, but then he sends in these like his goons or whatever, who are some historical figures, and even Jonathan recognizes them because he learned about them in school, apparently. And I, I'm just like not on board with it. I, I think that's part of the reason why this episode doesn't resonate as strongly with me, because I'm like, all right, this wasn't really what I was looking forward to. I guess I'll kind of watch through it, but I'm not compelled that much by by their stories. Like, it's it's kind of. It's that thing that I always say. It's it's one thing to tell us something in a show, and it's another thing to like show it to us in that show. And in this, Dio basically tells us, "Oh, I get goosebumps listening to their um to their betrayal or whatever." So then to me, it's like, well, now I don't feel like it really hit home because you had to tell me it was a a major betrayal and, and that they're really really evil or whatever versus showing it to me. Yeah, it felt like Bruford and Tarkus were just thrown into this story as almost like the like the villains of the week um i mean their story is pretty interesting and the one thing that i took out of it was you know when the narrator is talking about their demise like you know the these knights were actually very honorable in their deeds um in serving mary the queen of scots but then they end up being corrupted by the reason for like the true reasons behind the execution because mary was already killed and then, you know, Dio resurrects them um, because of their quest for, like, vengeance. Um, another thing I wanted to point out is when Bruford ends up going after Jonathan, um, there's a zombie that gets in his way, like a vampire zombie knight or whatever. And Bruford purposely, like, kills this zombie because he wants to be the one to go after Jojo. So I think with them being in this story, especially with Bruford, there seems to be a... Uh, correlation with the theme of honor um i'm not sure if that's something that we'll see as as the battle goes on but that's like the biggest thing that i took out of these characters yeah it's just like a strange concept to me that they were so honorable and they they were willing to die for for their queen and all this and then they get resurrected and suddenly they're they're like evil even though they still have to your point those um those feelings of honor inside them like i get maybe because it's dio that resurrected them so they're zombies now and like he's probably you know using mind control on them it's just i don't know the the whole dynamic is a bit strange um and we hear all about these two enemies and like barely get a taste of the fight that ensues with them and with jonathan the other thing with the knights and i think this is just part of like me finding so many oddities that happen in this episode is like Bruford when he goes to attack Jojo like he hides his arms behind his back at one point and Jonathan's not sure how he's going to attack but then he uses his hair to wield the sword that he uses to attack Jonathan it's like talk about being real extra (laughs) (laughs) um the other thing is and this is a fun fact Bruford is actually voiced by Kenjiro Suda who we or most of you might know as Overhaul from My Hero Kento Nanami from Jujutsu Kaisen and Leroro from Tower of God. Yeah, I didn't know that the first time I watched Jojo because I watched Jojo before I watched My Hero. Um, but now, like, I mean, he's got such a distinct voice. Like, and I say that in a good way. Like, you can you can tell no matter how much he tries to hide it. Like, that's that's the overhaul voice actor. So watching it again, I'm like, oh shit, that's overhaul. 
Yeah, in his other roles, he has more of like this cool, raspy sort of voice. Here, you don't hear it as distinctly because it. I think he wants to emulate more of that masculine knight personality of Bruford, but you you do get that little tinge of of the raspiness that Kenjiro's uh, pretty well known for. Yeah, it's like Bruford has a lot of screaming and stuff and yelling, and like so far of of the characters that he's voice acted that we've seen, um, none of them have ever really yelled so to your point they're all very subdued so it was kind of unique to hear his voice um you know in in a little more with a little more intensity but backing up a little bit towards the beginning of the episode um one of the first things we see when they arrive to win night's lot is poor best waifu speedwagon who just wants to help and be the best waifu he can by also getting hamon and joining the battle is like curled over because zapelli missed he, he shoved his pinky into his diaphragm, but he missed. And then he caused Best Waifu Speedwagon a lot of pain. And in that moment, I'm thinking, oh, my God, poor guy. Like, he just wants to help. But then also, I'm like, couldn't Zapelli just have tried again? <laughs> like, if he missed the first time, couldn't he just have tried again? Wait, so he wanted to give Hamon to Speedwagon to, like, assist them? I think that's what was going on. Like, you hear, okay. um, you hear like, Speedwagon wince in pain and the camera pans over and you see Zapelli and Speedwagon. Jonathan's like, what the fuck's going on? And um, Zapelli says to him like, oh, he wanted Hamon, but I missed. Like I hit him with my pinky, but I missed. And I'm just like, that's so sad for, for best wife with Speedwagon. But it's also, I think this is what I brought up in the last episode or two episodes ago when Zapelli was first introduced. I'm like, if that's all it takes to give someone the ability to use Hamon, why don't they recruit more people and like give them Hamon? Or like, why didn't he just try again? Why didn't Zapelli try again so that Speedwagon could have Hamon and join in on the fight? <laughs> I guess another way you could see it is because I'm pretty sure Zapelli used the same move on Jonathan, right? To give him Hamon. Yeah. But maybe it's just a test of one's will or resolve. Like, Jonathan was able to withstand it, Speedwagon isn't. Although you, you did mention that definitely just hit him in the wrong spot but yeah but as i think about it a little bit more later in the episode not to jump around too much but later in the episode um zapelli says to Speedwagon that he figured he would run away at the first sign of sign of danger so maybe he intentionally missed because he didn't actually want to give any hamon abilities to Speedwagon because he thought he was a coward or whatever but i don't know well we'll never know but um, what I do know is that he probably could at least try it again. I want to see Speedwagon with some hormone abilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we see Poco get introduced when he steals their bag. And he like climbs the mountain or the, the cliff. And then Zapelli and Jonathan go after him. And there's two things I wanted to call out about this. First, it's the way that Zapelli fucking walks on the water. He's like trotting on his tippy toes with his hands in this weird position and making noises like he's like some sort of crazy jesus tiptoeing across the water (laughs) it just looks so silly but it's perfect for his aloof personality but then on the flip side we see jonathan follow him and i really liked how jonathan doesn't quite keep his whole foot out of the water the way that zapelli did because zapelli just trotted over the the stream or whatever it was with ease but jonathan is like doing his best but he's still submerging his foot probably to about his ankle um as he's walking across the water so i think that's um that's important to note because while jonathan is quickly learning hamon he's still not on zapelli's level he still hasn't mastered it 
yeah, it was a nice little reminder, again, of where Jonathan is compared to Zeppeli in terms of using Hamon. Although he has, like, all these moves down when they use Hamon combat, combat um, Zoom Punch, Sunlight, sunlight Yellow Overdrive, Scarlet Overdrive. Like, he has all those moves out, and then the Turquoise Blue Overdrive at the end. Yeah, he's got a whole arsenal going. I think, as I'm thinking about it, too, um, one of the other things that I think ties back into Jonathan's growth is when they catch up to Poco and he's like almost at the top of the cliff and Jonathan uses his hamon to hit the cliff or like the rocks or whatever to send a shockwave up there to try and knock Poco down. He misses the first time and Zapelli comments and says like, oh, you used like perfect hamon in that moment. You just didn't aim quite right. I think that's another indication of, again, Jonathan's learning very quickly. He, he used perfect hamon but he wasn't able to aim it quite right to get Poco off the cliff and had to try again. Mm -hmm. um, so he, he's still in that learning mode, but we do see him progress very quickly. And again, in only nine episodes, there's only so much drawing out you can do of, of his development. But I do like that they're still continuing to remind us of that. And as the, the episode progresses, it quickly, I mean, like immediately turns from dusk to like nighttime, like pitch black. And we get reintroduced to Dio. And I completely forgot, and I always forget whenever I watch this episode, that this is the first time Zapelli is meeting Dio. I just always assume, and I know I shouldn't, but like I just always assume that Zapelli has like met him before just because every other character has up until this point. But yeah, he, he never met Dio before. And he says that and he's like he's like, Hey baby, and then he's like, you know, I've never met you before, but I can tell that you're really fucking evil. So then a fight ensues. Up on this pillar, like let's talk about this moment for a second because this is this is like JoJo. This is physics. the weirdest shit. <laughs> so they pan up this huge ass pillar, which is just made of a bunch of rocks, rocks stacked on top of each other, and Dio's like way up there. I mean, like like a skyscraper. He's all the way up there, and they're having a full blown conversation. I'm like, first of all, how can they even hear each other from that distance? Um, <laughs> it's like that um, scene in Shazam. You remember that? Oh <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the villain and. That's what that was like. Yeah, it's like you're you're talking in normal volume, but like physically, there's no way your voices could reach between the two of you at that distance. But that aside, um, they're they're talking away, and then they they talk about the hey baby, and they talk about the how many breads have you eaten in your lifetime, and then the fight starts between Zapelli and Dio, and we just get a shot of like Zapelli jumping, and suddenly he's next to Dio, like doing hand to hand combat with him. I'm like, how the fuck did he jump that high? There's like, he just jumped an entire skyscraper, basically. Like, what is he doing? How did he get up there? Does Hamon give you the ability to teleport like we saw in his introduction episode and now the ability to jump like a thousand feet in the air? <laughs> the other thing, and like I said before, there are just so many oddities in this episode, especially during these fight scenes that I think that kind of contributed to why this episode was just not hitting the mark for me. But... Dio freezes Zeppeli's arm um, to freeze his blood flow and prevent him from using Hamon. Like, where the hell did he get that power? Right? Was that ever established before? No, it's like a new new power that's introduced. And one of the things, not to spoil anything again ahead of this episode, but one of the things we'll see, which is kind of common throughout JoJo, is like those what people call the quote-unquote Iraqi forgot moments where something will be introduced and then you never see it again. Or... Um, something will be introduced and then it's like changed drastically the next couple times you see it. So um, 
or or they'll talk about something like as if it was introduced before but this is the first time we're seeing it and i feel like this is one of those moments and yeah so that that's the thing with dio's power like i get that he's this immortal vampire um but yeah one fault is that they just need to really establish what powers he does have instead of just adding this random shit but like you said this will be probably a recurring thing throughout jojo it will and it will yeah so be it (laughs) but then jonathan jumps up there to join the fight and i i'm like again how did he fucking get up there not only did he jump all the way up there he jumped all the way up there with poco on his back the whole time without making a sound and without dio even noticing yeah i did like how when um jonathan put his hand between dio's and zapelli's to save zapelli in that moment that his theme's theme song starts playing i thought that was really cool i'm like this is the perfect way to like introduce him into the fight it was very um it was like the really thematic part of his theme song and it just it all clicked very nicely um but then you think about it and as you watch it jonathan is just floating there i think at least dio and zapelli are maybe standing on the rocks but jonathan's literally floating in the air with his hand in between the two of them and he's not falling he's not succumbing to gravity at all and you can see dio talking to him as he's just frozen in midair so like what what kind of physics is happening at this moment yeah if you think about it it's like the whole arm freezing scene takes several minutes and again they're technically like standing slash floating they're just touching hands the entire time and poco is on jonathan's back but they're having a full-blown conversation as this is happening so like not only are they just floating there they're also just like touching hands for like several minutes as they're talking it just is so silly and amazing at the same time um but as that conversation is progressing, Dio does acknowledge that Jonathan has grown stronger and he seems impressed that he was able to stop Dio's hand um, as he's about to like fucking, you know, destroy Zapelli. So that's another instance in this episode where we really, um, where it's really solidified how much Jonathan has, has grown and developed over the last like two or three episodes. And one other thing I want to mention with this uh, sequence is... Um when Dio does his like second round of freezing Jonathan's or whoever's hands, there's like a 70s show circular camera angle that happens where it's just circling Dio and Zeppeli and Jonathan as they kind of ponder what to do next. Like it heightens like the tension of Dio's strength, but it's just also very hilarious use of this camera technique, which just adds to like the absurdity of this whole episode for me. And the fact that they're all they're all just floating there the whole time, like as they're thinking these things and and trying to figure out what to do next, they're just floating there. Mm-hmm. But then we see, I think Zapelli tries to distract Dio by kicking him, and Dio like fucking wrecks his leg, like oh God, that was... wrecks it. I'm talking like hits his shin and like cracks it, and it like bends in a weird angle that it's not supposed to. It bends it's the just, other way. Yeah, it's like gross, and it's like a split second thing. But then they don't talk about it the rest of the episode. Like, do you realize that? Like, they're they're talking about oh, his yeah, arm yeah. being frozen. And the whole time I'm like, yeah, his arm's frozen. That's great and all. But what the fuck happened to his leg? He, like, his whole leg just got shattered. Unless he used Hamon immediately to fix it. But they didn't acknowledge it after that. Zeppeli always okay. <laughs> like, damn, his leg got fucked. Mm-hmm. So speaking of Zeppeli and Speedwagon... Also, I noticed that I'm saying Zeppeli now instead of Zeppeli. 
I think we talked about this last I know. time. I, was, I, I always say Zappelli, but I think as I'm hearing you say Zeppeli, I'm starting to say it that way. Well, anyway, Zappelli and Speedwagon um, are on the ground after this fight, and they're trying to figure out how to unfreeze Zappelli's arms so that he can use Hamon because his blood has stopped flowing um, in that part of his body. And we get what I consider to be the absolute best part of this episode, hands down. And that's when Best Wife Speedwagon is just the best ever and uses the heat radiating oh from his God. bare abs to thaw Zeppeli's arm. Like he he rips his shirt up and it's super dramatic. And he's like, I don't even know what he says. He just like shouts something like, I can you know fix your arm or I can heat that up or some shit like that. And then he just presses Zeppeli's arm. Zeppeli's arm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch between it now all the time. He, he presses Zeppeli's arm against his bare abs and thaws it. Like, best wife, man. Like, hands down. You cannot compete with Speedwagon. Well, I'm just shaking my head. <laughs> of all the things that he could have thought of to, like, save Zeppeli's arm, like, he just shoves it inside his body. <laughs> Not inside his body, but... He doesn't even wrap it in his shirt. Like, he has his abs just exposed to the cold air, and he's just... That's how hot Speedwagon is. Like, the mm. man is hot, okay? Yeah, like, literally. <laughs> rock-hard abs. Yeah. Um, and this is the part that I mentioned earlier where, where Zapelli, um, as he's getting his arm thawed by Speedwagon's radiating abs, um, he says that he thought that Speedwagon would run away at the first sign of danger, and he apologizes to Speedwagon for um, making that assumption of him. And I'm sitting over here thinking like, of course you're wrong, Zapelli. This is best waifu Speedwagon we're talking <laughs> about here. Like he would never betray Jonathan. And he even says that too. He says that he didn't want to come there to, um, or go there to slow them down. Like he, Speedwagon genuinely wants to help. He just wants to help and protect them, protect Jonathan because he has so much respect for him. Um, and yeah, I, th I think this is, this is one of his shining moments, being able to, to thaw Zapelli's arm and just be of tons of use to him. Yeah, he's kind of like that NPC that accompanies you in a video game, but really doesn't do anything because you have to carry the brunt of the work. But I would figure, yeah, like Speedwagon's made it this far, like he's traveled from Joestar Mansion to checking in on Jonathan in the hospital and now traveling with them to win night slot. Like, I highly doubt that Speedwagon would just turn now, turn turn away from helping out at this moment after having traveled with this group this far into the game. Yeah, after what happened at the mansion, if that doesn't scare Speedwagon away, I don't think anything will. <laughs> on the flip side, though, it's kind of odd and creepy that Speedwagon knows Jonathan's exact height, which is 195 centimeters or about six feet. I think he mentions that um, when he's comparing Jonathan's height to the size of either Bruford or Tarkus's dagger. Oh, yeah, that's right. Like, who else would know that? Maybe he saw it on his medical chart at the hospital. I don't know, man. Like, that is kind of interesting. But hey, I think all best waifus should know the height of their husband. I mean, yeah, this just yeah lends credence to the theory. Or I don't know the reality that Speedwagon is best wife. The Speedwagon's thorough. Well, we'll put it that way. He's thorough. Okay, he's got to know the person he's protecting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the last thing I wanted to mention about this episode, also on the theme of Speedwagon, is that he reminds us of Jonathan's burden, quote unquote, as he calls it, which is Jonathan's desire to avenge his father and also his desire to return to Erina. Um, 
I I love that part. Uh, I think that we we see here again this this growth that Jonathan's experiencing with Hamon, his desire to to destroy Dio, but it's rooted in something bigger than just the mask. It's rooted in everything that Dio's put Jonathan through, um, and the fact that Jonathan just wants to live a quiet life. You'll get that you know in a couple of parts in JoJo what I what I'm talking about there in terms of quiet life, um, and. It's, it's so much that's kind of stacked on top of each other that's compounded that he he just wants to win. He wants to overcome this evil person and set things straight so that he can just live a quiet life. <laughs> I get some goddamn peace and quiet. <laughs> and as he's fighting um, Bruford in the lake or the pond or whatever the fuck it is, um, we see a moment where Jonathan's kind of panicking because he's like, shit, I can't breathe down here. I don't have gills. And he recalls something that his his dad, George Joestar, taught him, um, which is about getting Danny to let go of his toy. He says, like, if you if you want to get the toy from Danny, you can't try to take it away from him because then he only wants it more. You have to give it to him to get him to let it go. And at first I didn't understand this, but I think as I think about it more, this is Jonathan realizing this lesson from his father that if one option seems hopeless you have to find another way to overcome or win so in this example jonathan realizes if he struggles to the surface he may just make it in time but it's more likely he's going to drown so instead he decides to overcome that situation overcome that dilemma and swim down to the bottom of the lake in order to find air bubbles that he can use hamon in the water well first of all so he can he can breathe down there but then also so that he can use Hamon in the water where it'll be amplified because Hamon is amplified with liquids. Yeah, that was a lot of big brain time for him to do um, while submerged. Yeah, while being pursued by a zombie knight. And to just even remember that there's, you know, coal sitting at the bottom of the, or I guess they were just rocks um, and knowing that scientific fact out of nowhere. But I guess like it, it relates to, you know, when you're, at the brink of death, like your mind tries to find any little thing that'll help you um, in surviving. And this moment's also important because we've seen Zapelli really become Jonathan's mentor and teacher over the last couple of episodes. But this is our good reminder that George raised his son to be strong and resilient. Um, and I feel like that's one of the things I wish I saw more of with Jonathan's arc um, is more of his father playing a bigger role in, in him overcoming obstacles. Because again, earlier Jonathan says like part of his burden is avenging his father. Um, and we saw how he, you know, how he raised Jonathan. So I, I just feel like these types of moments are really important. Um, for anyone who's watched Vinland Saga, I think you kind of get that concept of like the memory of um, what you were taught as a kid by your parents or whatever those things will continue to fuel you in the right direction. And, and this is one of those moments. And, and I'd like to see more of those moments for Jonathan. Yeah. And I don't really remember what happens in the next couple episodes of this part, but I am curious to see um, if there are more mentions of George um, as being a, a catalyst and a motivator for Jonathan's journey um, in defeating Dio. The last thing I want to mention about this episode, and again, this is just another oddity that I couldn't get over, is like they're in Wind Knight's lot, which I don't know how far that is from like the main part of England, 
but why would Dio pick this buttfuck town to start spreading like the zombie vampire infection instead of just starting like within the heart of London where he originally was? That's a good point because he actually decides to leave the battle when when Tarkus and Bruford take over, and he actually says like. I'm going to leave so I can fuck up Wind Knight's lot and make everyone a zombie because within 24 hours, they'll make everyone else in in England zombies as well. But you bring up a good point. It's so isolated mm-hmm. that like that's a tall order for them to be able to infect everybody else within 24 hours when they have to travel so far just to get to where everyone's located. Yeah, I get that. Like there were legendary knights that were buried in this town, but I think they mentioned there's 517 citizens and prisoners combined in this town compare that to like i would say hundreds of thousands or even like a million people in london like why start here i don't know i thought about that um as we went through our second watch through but yeah it's just one of those other things in this episode that i can't get over so overall what are your final thoughts on part one episode five the dark knights um like i said in the beginning honestly if I had to pick one episode that I consider my least favorite, it would be this episode. But it is still a good episode. We get some great memes from it. Um, it progresses the plot decently well. Um, and we get the return of, of Dio and Zapelli's introduction to him. And, of course, Speedwagon's rock-hard hot abs. So I would say um, this one is one I could take or leave. But it's still super important to the overall story. And, um, you know, it has its place in, in part one. What about you? Yeah, I agree with your sentiments. I guess the way I would describe this episode is just poorly executed. Um, it felt like a weird filler episode and just a very strange and less than grand way to reintroduce Dio so soon after his epic mansion battle with Jonathan. I felt like they could have just done it a little bit better than trying to cram all of these different action sequences and and story building um within this one episode um so i think like here it felt like the part part one was kind of losing its luster unlike the previous episode overdrive that introduced zeppoli but i'm still looking forward to how this battle with bruford is going to conclude in the next episode yeah i mean honestly the show only gets better from here like Every episode is better and better and better. Every part is better and better and better. Um, So even though we may be a little less excited about this particular episode, literally there's nowhere else for the show but to go up from here. And it will, and it's phenomenal. And we cannot wait to talk about it. And I would say the saving grace of this episode was definitely Speedwagon's rock hard abs. He's sexy, baby. Hey, baby. (laughs) (laughs) And that wraps up episode five of Strictly JoJo. New episodes premiere every other Monday at 9 a.m. Central. You can follow us on Instagram at The Strictly Series and on Twitter at Strictly Series. Check out our website, thestrictlyseries.com, where you can reach out to us to share your thoughts on JoJo's Bizarre Adventure or on Speedwagon's steamy hot abs. You'll also find more info on Strictly Anime, our other podcast for anime reviews and discussions. Thank you so much for listening and sharing our love of JoJo. Stay weeb, everyone. To be continued.